Applications of artificial intelligence are permeating our everyday lives. We notice it in small ways. Improvements to speech recognition, better quality products being recommended to us, cheaper goods and services that have dropped in price because of more intelligent production. But what can we quantitatively say about the rate at which artificial intelligence is improving? How fast are models advancing? Do the different fields in artificial intelligence all advance together? Or are they improving separately from each other? In other words, if the accuracy of a speech recognition model doubles, does that mean that the accuracy of image recognition will also double? It's hard to know the answer to these questions. Machine learning models trained today can consume 300,000 times the amount of compute that could be consumed in 2012. That's a nice statistic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that models are 300,000 times better. These training algorithms could just be less efficient than yesterday's models, and therefore they're consuming more compute. But we can observe from empirical data that models tend to get better with more compute. They also tend to get better with more data input. How much better do they get? Do they scale linearly with the amount of data or the amount of compute? Well, that varies from application to application. It varies from speech recognition to language translation. We can't really say anything conclusively about all machine learning models improving because of some specific metric, but models do seem to improve with more compute and more data. Dario Amode works at OpenAI, where he leads the AI safety team. In a post called AI and Compute, Dario observed that the consumption of machine learning training runs is increasing exponentially, doubling every 3.5 months. In this episode, Dario discusses the implications of increased consumption of compute in the training process. Dario's focus is AI safety. AI safety encompasses both the prevention of accidents and the prevention of deliberate malicious AI application. Today, humans are dying in autonomous car crashes. Happens rarely. This is an accident. The reward functions of social networks are being exploited by botnets and fake salacious news. This is a malicious application of AI. The dangers of AI are already affecting our lives on these axes of accident and malice. There will be more accidents, there will be more malicious applications. The question is what to do about it. What are the general strategies that can be devised to improve AI safety? After Dario and I talked about the increased consumption of compute by training algorithms, we explore the implications of this increase for safety researchers. I also want to quickly announce that we're looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. We want to bring in new voices. We're focused on high-quality content about technology that will stand the test of time. AI safety is a good example of something that has not been written about much relative to how important it is. If you want to write, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write to find out more. We're looking for part-time and full-time and volunteer contributors people who just want to write about software engineering, and people who want to turn it into a full-time job. We want to explain technical concepts and tell the untold stories of the software world. We just launched a new design at softwareengineeringdaily.com, so if you'd like to work with us, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write. You can also send me an email directly, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get on with the show. 
Dario Amade is the team lead for AI safety at OpenAI. Dario, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. You published a result recently that showed that the amount of compute used in AI training has been increasing dramatically. And I'd like to discuss these findings with you. I'd like to start with just a little bit of basic discussion around AI to refresh people. Can you explain what happens when an AI model is getting trained? Right. So we kind of have two phases to at least today's AI models. They're a bit different from humans in that uh, in humans, these phases are more mixed together, although you can still see them as distinct. So, you know, let's take as an example, a computer vision model, right? That uh, uh, looks at a picture and, uh, you know, classifies an object like a dog. So there's a long period of training during which, you know, you have to pass a bunch of training images through this model and update all of its internal parameters. I mean, that's one computational process. It takes a long time. You often need millions of images to train on. You often need to train on each image multiple times. And then at the end of the process, you can simply take the resulting neural net. And then once it's trained, you can feed a single other image to it that, you know, maybe an image that wasn't in the train set. And it says, you know, that's a dog or that's a cat. But the amount of computation that you put through a model at test time when you're classifying a final image is much less than what you have to put through to train it. Training requires all this infrastructure. Running a model is something that in some cases can, you know, can be run on your phone. Your paper is about the fact that this training process, which, as you said, is the compute-intensive portion of the two processes, at least today, the training process can use 300,000 times the amount of compute that was used in 2012. When you say compute, what is the resource that we're talking about more precisely? What does compute mean? So to get a little bit into details, we mean the number of uh, arithmetic operations of whatever precision is appropriate for using the neural net that are performed in the full course of training. So if training is spread across, across many machines and each machine is running a copy of the neural net, you would get this number by looking inside each machine, looking at the number of arithmetic operations that gets done on the GPU on that machine throughout the course of training, adding that up across all the machines, and, and that would be the number of flops. Flops is a floating point operations. It's a bit of a misnomer because in some of the models, the training isn't always, you know, sometimes it's single precision float, sometimes it's half precision float, sometimes it's integers, but we really just mean arithmetic operations, adds or multiplies uh, within a neural net. Why does the AI training process require so much compute? So there's uh, differing opinions about uh, whether this is uh, just a fact about AI or if this is, you know, a shortcoming of, of our algorithms, but for whatever reason, it's the case right now that if you want to teach a neural net to do something like vision or speech or translation or game playing, then you need a huge amount of training data to allow it to do this. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, the ImageNet data set for vision requires about, about a million images or so. You know, it's possible that uh, once we get better at transferring to new tasks or once we make progress on learning without supervision, that we'll be able to do this from a smaller number of data points. It's also possible that for, for the tasks we're working on, it just, just requires this, uh, this many data points. But whichever of those two is the case, uh, this is the situation we're in now, that it requires a huge amount of training data to, uh, you know, to build systems that work. The result that the paper emphasizes is this dramatic increase in the amount of compute that is being used during the training process. Why is that relevant? Why is it relevant that 
we can consume so much more compute during a training run. Couldn't that just mean that, well, the models that we're building today, we're just doing them less efficiently. We're building the models exactly the same, except we're doing it less efficiently, and therefore we're using more compute. How do we know that this increase, this dramatic increase in compute, is correlated with an improvement in something that is desirable? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I think the paper got uh, mostly positive reception, but you know, I think the minority of negative reception that we got was making a point similar to this. It's actually a point that I agree with, or at, le- at least think think could be right. So, kind of here's here's the way I think about it. You know, there are several, as the blog post says, there are kind of several ingredients into making AI work. Right? There's the algorithms which, uh, you know, if you, if you don't have a good algorithm, you won't do well. There's the training data, you know, which in the case of, of, of interactive environments is more like, you know, a, a game environment, but could also be static data. And then there's the hardware. And so, you know, the I would distinguish between kind of a few things in the post. So, so all the post is kind of asserting as fact is that one of these ingredients, the hardware is going completely crazy. And, uh, you know, I mean, if I was looking at, you know, I want to build something powerful, knowing that one of the ingredients for that is going completely crazy makes me wonder, you know, I don't know how much of the other ingredients I need. I might need a little, I might need a lot, but, you know, looking at that trend, I would say, hey, I should pay attention because it might turn out that I don't need as much of these other two ingredients as I think I do. Maybe I need a lot. And so, you know, I'm kind of overfeeding this one ingredient. And so it, it, it really, uh, it really doesn't, uh, it really doesn't make a difference. But uh, we kind of don't know if we're in that world or if we're in the world where, you know, this is the ingredient we need the most of. So, so as someone who, you know, tries to be cautious and tries to anticipate the speed of progress, this is something that makes me want to be cautious. Now, I think it's true. So two other things are definitely true. One is that it happens all the time that we learn to build models that use the same amount of compute uh, and perform better or that perform just as well with less compute. And sometimes this is cited as, hey, so, you know, this means compute and hardware don't, this means compute and hardware don't matter. That hasn't been my experience at all. My experience has been that, you know, often we do discover innovative things um, by experimenting with uh, small amounts of training compute. But once we do that, we learn to scale those things up we, and we use the same amount of compute that we used before to do something much more impressive, then we get more compute and we can do something, something even more impressive. So these ingredients tend to, tend to add to each other. So whenever I see someone discovering a way, as has been done in actually several points in that graph, to do what they could do before, but with you know, 90% less compute than they could do before, in my mind, that just kind of adds to this trend, right? It's, it's kind, of a, kind of another ingredient that's, uh, that's driving things forward. You cite a paper in this blog post called Deep Learning Scaling is Predictable Empirically. That's the name of the paper that you cite. Deep Learning Scaling is Predictable Empirically. And I think the idea of this paper is that there are things in deep learning that we do not understand. That's just the matter of fact is we train these models and we don't know exactly how they work, but they do work and we can make other empirical observations, like we're making one empirical observation in the fact that this model is good at identifying a cat. What is it doing to identify that cat? Well, I can't actually tell you at a low level, but I can tell you that it's improving at identifying the cat. Right. And similarly, there are other empirical conclusions that we can draw 
based off of looking at these different domains in machine learning, things like machine translation, language modeling, image processing, speech recognition. And then we can try to make general statements about the relationships between the size of training sets, the amount of compute, the accuracy of the model. Describe the significance of this paper. Deep learning scaling is predictable empirically. So a little background on that paper. So before I was at, at OpenAI, one of the places I worked was uh, Andrew Ng's lab at uh, Baidu, which was very active in, in speech recognition, which I, which I worked on. One of the things we did in the paper that uh, you know, we released shortly before I left Baidu was uh, you know, we had this speech model in English and Chinese, and uh, we did this kind of analysis on it where we said, well, what happens, you know, we have, all, we have this huge amount of data that we're training this model on. What if we, uh, what if we only take 50% of the data? What if we only take 25% of the data? What if we only take 10% of the data? And what if we do it with the full size model, slightly smaller model? So you can make these kind of graphs that, you know, show how, how this model does as a function of these different inputs that you give it, data, computation, number of um, amount of capacity in the model. And we found these very smooth graphs. And it was just kind of, uh, you know, a random observation that we made as part of the paper. Um, so then so then I left then I left Baidu. But, uh, you know, in, in the year or two after that, I found out that, uh, you know, people had really followed up on this. And for many different models, we're starting to make these observations that, you know, if you make a, a log log plot of how much data are you feeding the model versus versus what its performance is? Uh, the plot has this very smooth shape, which is you know an interpretation is something like every time you double the amount of data, the accuracy you know the the error rate of your speech model decreases by you know twelve percent or something like that, right? It's a it's a different scaling law for for every system that we've observed, and eventually, of course, you scale to, to you you do scale to a point where it, it it levels off because the data you're training on has its own errors. Maybe the model is limited in some ways. But I, I was really struck both in the, in the early work I did on this and in the, you know, in the paper that Baidu published later by how smooth these scaling laws are. Um, and so that, that's one thing that makes me think, at least within a domain, right? This is a, this is a very, very important caveat. Within a domain like you know, speech recognition or vision recognition, within a domain and up to a point, there's this very smooth dependence on how much, how much data you're using um, and how much, compute, how much compute you decide to use. And again, even within the domain, this eventually levels off and maybe you need a bigger data set or a better model or something like this. I think we, we may, in fact, be getting to the point in things like speech, image recognition, where, you know, we are starting to level off and we're, we're at least on some we'll at least on some axes have, you know, exceeded exceeded human performance, although on other axes we haven't. So, you know, it, it is true that this is only an observation within domains. But at the same time, you know, I think there are other domains and things like reinforcement learning or, you know, playing, playing very difficult video games might be cases where we're still on the part of the curve where we haven't leveled off yet. I've seen a lot of evidence, you know, at, at OpenAI and elsewhere that this is the case. So, you know, my, my picture of it is, okay, within domains, there's this kind of smooth scaling up to a point. You need some innovation in models. But every time we have a new domain, you know, we start we start off at the beginning of this curve and having a whole bunch of hardware available means that whenever we find a new domain, a new thing we can learn, a new data set we can train on, a new environment we can train reinforcement learning agents on, we have we're starting off with this huge amount of compute 
And every time it increases, we, we, we kind of increase down this, down this scaling curve. That makes me feel that, you know, the, the, the other ingredients like data and algorithms, in many cases, we have enough of them that we can continue to make progress. By no, cha- by no, in, you know, by, by no stretch of the imagination is this always the case. There's going to need to be a lot of algorithmic innovation to solve all kinds of problems that we, we haven't solved uh, before. But we don't know exactly how much of it there needs to be, and we don't know in, in how many domains. We really we don't know how far pure scaling can take us. These two conclusions separately. So the first that your blog post was covering, the idea that you can observationally see that 300,000 times the amount of compute is going into models today than was going into models in 2012. And the other observation that this other paper, this deep learning scalable predictability that is empirically observed, this other paper observes that within given domains, you can see that there is a predictable, empirically observable increase in model quality or scalability defined how you want it to be defined as you add in more data or more compute and if you take these two discoveries together, this increase in compute that a model can can gobble up, and the fact that scaling seems to be predictable empirically, what conclusion can we draw from these two trends intersecting? Yeah, so I do kind of want to make the caveat that, you know, I think the first trend, the growth in hardware, which the blog posts mostly focus on, I mean, that's something that you know, you can, you can quibble with the measurements a little bit, but we're, we're kind of asserting that as factual. The paper we link to and, uh, you know, that we kind of write a couple sentences in support of, I would, I would more say that's a conjecture that has some evidence behind it. You know, it's only been, it's only been tested for some domains. It may differ for different domains. I, I would more say that it's kind of, you know, it's like the, t- the tantalizing beginnings of seeing kind of yeah. the science of deep learning and how it scales. But, you know, the blog post doesn't mostly focus on that second part, and I'm uh, I'm a little uncomfortable fully asserting it as factual. I I would more say that you know we're seeing we're seeing signs in that direction um, that you you can make a case for it. But yeah, with with that caveat, I mean I think if it were the case that both both trends were true, it would mean for at least a lot of the domains that we currently operate in. Again, you know, vision, speech, image, vision, speech, you know, translation. That you know we can get very far just by scaling things, we'll have the hardware to scale and, you know, when, and, and the use of that hardware will actually translate into improved performance. Now, there is this kind of tailing off where, you know, it's, it's possible. I don't know what, what happens within, you know, production systems at, at Google or at other companies. It's possible that, you know, internally, we've already taken these systems to the point where they're leveling off and, you know, we may need some amount of, some amount of additional algorithmic innovation, like the, you know, the models may not be right, or we may just have solved the problem, depending on the domain. But I think the most interesting implication to me is if those two things are both true across a wide variety of domains, they could also be true across future domains. So it could be that, you know, we have this crank where we kind of discover a new problem. Maybe there's just one or two algorithmic innovations where it's like, here's a new domain we can study. Here's, here's an algorithm for using it. And if we have this crank of like applying a lot of hardware to it and this other crank of applying a lot of hardware turns, turns into good performance, then we might have a machine that allows us to kind of very quickly, you know, conquer new domains that we might have thought would take a long time to solve. Um, and if, if that's the case, then, you know, 
we're very quickly going to see AI capabilities that we don't have today, you know, go from, we can't do this at all, to, oh, here's an idea for doing it, to, we applied a, we applied a bunch of compute to it, there was some algorithmic innovation, and two years later, we, we can totally solve this task. Um, that's totally different from deploying systems in the world, but at least, at least from a research point of view, I think this, uh, you know, this leads to the possibility of a world of kind of very rapid and unpredictable progress, right? Where just because you can look at something that we can't do at all today, right? Something, something that we can't do at all today, you know, like, uh, you know, machines can't learn to recognize a new image the first time, a new class of image the first time they've seen it. Just because we can't do that at all today doesn't mean that we won't be graded at two or three years from now. It might also take us 10 years or 100 years. But I think the fact that one, maybe two of the three ingredients are right there for us means that, you know, it's, it's deceptive to say, we can't, we can't do this at all. You know, therefore, therefore, there's, there's so much that, you know, therefore, AI will never do these tasks, or it'll be a long time. And I think that unpredictability, you know, it's, both a source of excitement and and kind of a source of a source of worry, right? Because uh, you know society will need to adapt to these new things that we're already learning to do very fast, and you know may may start to learn to do even faster. I do want to discuss the questions of safety and societal adaptation a little bit later, but to talk at a more technical level, continuing your points. In the last few years, we have seen deployment of some specific algorithms that have allowed for better parallelism. So parallelism in the context of machine learning, at least as as I've heard it, we did a show a while ago with somebody from Intel talking about data parallelism and model parallelism. Describe some of the techniques for parallelism in deep learning and how that applies to the quality of the models that we end up developing. Yep, yep. So, you know, I think actually parallelism, which is one of the big things that's, you know, that's that's driving the trend that I showed in that in that blog post, it's been one of the big things that's been a limitation for deep learning for a while and is only only gradually being lifted. So probably the best best way to explain it is with you know let's take let's take a particular model and you know let's let's return to the let's return to the uh, to the image recognition model as an example. So the idea is you know you're training this image recognition model on a data set that has a million a million images or so, and if you were completely naive, one way you could train is you could pass an image through it, have it learn from the image, then pass another image through it, have it learn from that image. And then, and then do that 1.2 million times, right? But that would take such a long serial time that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do it. You'd have to run it on one, one CPU and, you know, the number of op- serial operations you'd have to do, you know, would take, it would take you years to do it. So in practice, we both have, we both use GPUs to kind of run, run a larger batch size. So I have my model, I have its parameters and I run a hundred images on a given GPU through that model, all with the same parameters. And then I do a batch update of the parameters where I, where I learn from all the images. I can also take this further where I can run it on, you know, a few tens, few tens of GPUs over the last couple of years, we've pushed it to, you know, maybe hundreds and hundreds and thousands of GPUs where I have a large batch of like, you know, something like a thousand to 10,000 images. And I learn from those all at once. But the problem is that if I go too far with this, the learning becomes inefficient and basically the extra parallelism is wasted. A good analogy to, you know, to, to think about that 
is, you know, let's say I'm, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to figure out a new environment, like I'm trying to learn to play tennis or something. Having feedback is really important. So uh, I need to try something. I need to say how well it works and what my errors are. And then I need to learn from that to try the next thing. And if I'm trying 10,000 things at once before I get feedback on any of those things, then, you know, for, for a while, it's like, it's great. I'm getting, getting more experience, experience at once. I can learn from it. But if I'm paralyzing things too much, then I'm trying all these things at random without actually getting feedback from them. And then when I try, you know, when I try the next thing, I have to try a huge number, a huge number of other things. So you get, uh, you know, the technical term is like slippage in your gradient updates, where because you're trying to learn from too many things at once without learning from the first things, from, from the first parts of the batch, without learning from the later parts of the batch, that uh, the, the learning becomes inefficient. And so it was the case, you know, back in 2012 to 2014 or so that, you know, you could use one, you could use like three GPUs to train a model in a few days, but you couldn't use a thousand GPUs to train the same model in, you know, a few, a few minutes. Um, you, you just couldn't parallelize the thing. And, you know, that limited how powerful a single model could be because how powerful a single model could be was tied to basically how much training resources you could pour into that single model. If we're talking about domains like image recognition or language translation, the problem is very well-defined, ultimately. Yeah. You want to identify an image, you want to translate a language, there's some subjectivity there, but generally the problem is quite well-defined. It seems like there are a lot of other domains where the problem is less well-defined. You know, So even in something like world playing de- developing an ai to play world of warcraft or to play warcraft or to play starcraft or to play an old arcade game at least you can give it a reward function like maximize the score or maximize these different things across you know some uh, trade off function things are pretty well defined but if you talk about defining how a drone should fly or how a car should drive around it seems like there are so many other variables that it's a little bit harder to define, not a little bit harder, significantly harder to define what the problem that we're trying to solve is. It, do you anticipate any, any bottlenecks in the widespread applications of deep learning when we've exhausted these things that are a little bit easier to approach? Yeah, so I think that actually, uh, I think that actually is one of the one of the bottlenecks. And I agree with you in the sense that, you know, the, the supervised learning tasks you described, they have kind of a well-defined answer. Even the, the reinforcement learning tasks you, you described, like game playing, have, have a well-defined answer. But uh, we still haven't gotten, you know, we still haven't gotten to the point where we can really turn the crank of kind of, you know, compute and, and models on tasks that don't, that don't have a particularly well-defined answer. I would say there are a few places where we're kind of starting, starting to make progress on this. So uh, generative models are an example of this, right? Where uh, the setup here is, uh, you know, I, I give you a bunch of pictures of, you know, things like celebrity faces or bedrooms or cats or something. And, uh, you know, you're asking, you're asking the AI to generate more images that are kind of drawn from the same distribution as those images. So it'll generate celebrity faces that, you know, don't correspond to any actual celebrity, but look plausible, look, look photorealistic. And I think we're starting to make, we're starting to make a lot of progress on that. The, the other thing you mentioned about, you know, kind of not knowing how to define success, not knowing what the objective or the goal is, uh, that's, that's actually been 
one of the subjects of, of research of my team, my team at OpenAI, uh, we did this paper called Deep Reinforcement Learning from Human Preferences. And the idea of it was, was exactly what you say, like uh, for many tasks we would want an AI system to do, there's no well-defined you know, score you know, in Atari or winning in Go or winning in, winning in World of Warcraft. You know, what the human wants the AI system to do may be really complicated, some, some complicated aesthetic thing, like, you know, doing a backflip that looks, looks pretty or, you know, rearranging furniture in a room or something like this. And so we developed a method for doing this where basically the agent shows its behavior, examples of its behavior to a human, and the human rates, you know, examples of the behavior based on how, how close they are to what the human wants the agent to do. So basically, the human is defining the reward function, the success criterion for the agent. And then the agent goes back, tries to do really well on that. Then, of course, there's some subtle aspects of what the human wanted the agent to do that it doesn't get exactly right. So it shows more more examples of its behavior to the human. The human discriminates between those. It says, no, when you want to do this backflip, you want it to be perfectly smooth. You don't want this little jerky jerky part of the, the backflip. And, you know, we did this kind of only at small scale so far. Um, but the idea is that, you know, what I think we need is a lot of different ideas in this direction that, uh, you know, could all could all be, you know, we, we can try scaling all of them and see which one of them works. My guess is that eventually, and maybe in not too long, we will find one approach that really does work at scale and really does get get on that kind of log, log, smooth, smooth curve of progress. It may be a little bumpy to find, uh, you know, to, to find the right uh, algorithm. But, uh, you know, I, you know, I think there we're, we're kind of we're kind of in the algorithm search stage to, to find the thing that works. But, you know, I, I agree that's one of the most difficult things that it, it looks like we're getting very good at doing any task where we can quantify success, but we can't do tasks where we can't we can't quantify success. So your intuition is that we will figure out some method to approach this class of problem where it's harder to define what success is? Yeah, I mean, I think the paper that me and my colleagues wrote wrote about a year ago, Deep Reinforcement Learning from Human Preferences, uh, showed that you, you can do this at small scale. And then, then the question is just, you know, does, the, does this work at large scale for, for large tasks like, like driving or doing ballet or, you know, or, you know, composing a song or something like that? Mm-hmm. One issue I'm curious about is dealing with large data sets. If, even if we're just talking about these problems that are more approachable, like, like language translation. So when I was at the TensorFlow Dev Summit in 2017, I heard Jeff Dean say that they were not able to fit all of Google's available training data into the training process of a language translation model. And I didn't really understand why that was. Why is it that you can hit a bottleneck with training data? Can you just keep getting more and more training data and just keep stuffing that into a model? What? Why do you hit a bottleneck? I'm actually not 100% confident what Jeff was referring to. There are a few bottlenecks I can imagine. One is that you've just exhausted the amount of training data that Google can generate. I, I don't, based on your quote, I don't think that's what he was referring to. Another possibility is that uh, you can't feed your model fast enough, right? So you have all this training data and you want to feed it to you want to feed it to a model, but you know each each image is like a megabyte or so. And if you want to train really fast, want to train a big model for a long time, 
you know, each machine that trains the model has a limited has a limited input output bandwidth. And, you know, maybe you can't, tr- you, you know, to train at the speed that you want to train to, to absorb the number of images you want to absorb, you exceed that training bandwidth. Uh, it could also be a reference to parallelism where, you know, even now you can only train on so many GPUs. And so, you know, if you can only train on 100 GPUs and each GPU can only process, you know, 500 images a second and you can only train the whole model for one month or it takes too long, then then there's only a certain a certain amount of data you can absorb. Um, but I think that further innovations in parallelism will, you know, will con- I think continue to to lift those limits. Um, another comment is, uh, you know, I think interactive environments may also save us here. Where if you look at something like Atari or Go or uh, Dota, which uh, which OpenAI is working on, uh, basically what happens is the environment generates your training data. Right, you're you're this Dota agent. You know, you're put in this environment. You take an action. Then, then the environment generates a next state, and you can just play the game over and over again and get get repeated unique training data. And you never have to store your training data; you just you just have to generate it on the fly, process it, and then you can mostly throw it away. So, so those may be ways around around the bottleneck. But yeah, there I mean there are fundamental limits in how fast you can process data, how much data you can generate. Uh, I'm not sure which of those limits he was he was referring to. Okay, I think we've done a pretty good job of setting up the premise of your paper, which is the fact that there is dramatic improvements in compute hardware that can be applied to deep learning, such that the training process of our deep learning model creation can consume compute dramatically faster. Whether or not that leads to better models, well, you know, that's not really in the scope of the paper. You talk about it a little bit. But I think it's safe to say that programmers are pretty good at making use of additional compute when it's made available to them. So the fact that you can present large volumes of compute to the programmer and say, programmer, use this compute intelligently to generate better models seems like a driving force in creating better deep learning models. And of course the amount of data that we have available to us is also improving. So we have improvements in the quantity of data. We have improvements in the amount of compute. We have improvements in parallelism techniques. It seems like we are careening towards a world where models are very, very, very good. Even though, I mean, we're in that world already. They're just going to get even better. And you're the team lead for safety at OpenAI. So, I think that most people in the audience probably agree that AI safety is an important problem. Where they may disagree is the the intensity of their belief on on uh, its importance. You wrote a paper called Concrete Problems in AI Safety, which focuses on accidents. And what I liked about this paper was that it is a clear-eyed view into some of the problems in AI safety, because I think it's very easy for people to to make mistakes when they're thinking about AI safety, if they haven't thought about it deeply. Why are machine learning accidents a common concrete problem in safety? Yeah, I'd say a couple things on this. I mean, I think the fundamental source of it is when, when you run a machine learning system, you kind of give up the guarantee that you have in most programming applications that you can, at least in principle, trace exactly, you know, what lines of code a system executed, 
why it why it did what it did. If I script something myself, I can at least say, I can at least trace through the lines of code that are in principle understandable to me and say, okay, I understand why the system did I did did what it did. You know, is there is this a bug? Is this an unanticipated situation? I can I can track it down. With a machine learning system, you know, I have a training data set um, or a training environment. And, you know, I absorb specific examples in those training environments, but I'm then, I'm then trying to generalize to other examples that are similar in some way to the, to the training examples, but, uh, you know, are not the same as any of the training examples. So every time a machine learning system is deployed, it's deployed in a situation that it's never seen before. And the hope is that that's at least somewhat similar to, situate, to the situations it was trained on, but sometimes it's not similar. And when it's not similar, we really have, on a theoretical basis, absolutely no guarantees about how, how that system is going to behave, right? So when I, when I was at Baidu, in the early days of training our English speech system, you know, we trained it mostly on, you know, American-accented data, right? And then you would get this kind of weird, unbalanced speech system that would do great on, you know, anyone who spoke with an American accent, but if you spoke with a British accent or an Indian accent or a, you know, a Ch- Chinese accent or a, you know, Eastern, Eastern European accent, sometimes it would do really terribly, even though, you know, to, to a human, these, these things don't, don't sound all that different. Um, so this, this kind of basic unpredictability, you know, that, that I think also leads to a lot of the problems we're having with, you know, deploying self-driving cars, right? It's a lot easier to train in a simulator than it is, uh, you know, to, than it is to learn and train in the real world. But the real world is different from a simulator. And we're always trying to make our simulators better to make them more like the real world. But, you know, this, this shift between the training environment and a testing environment is, uh, you know, something that's, that's kind of still with us. And I think the concerning thing is, you know, often with enough training and with enough iteration, we can make these things work in practice. But, you know, there's still this, we don't really have any guarantees, right? It, it's it's kind of like uh, you know you, you do your best, you train. The more you train, the you, you know the broad the broader training environment you train in, the better you think you can do. But but we just don't we don't really have we don't really have any guarantees on how the system will behave when it's deployed. Um, and I think you know that's that's a matter of concern for me, right? And, and I think the concern increases as the power of the system increases. Where it's the concern is present when you know when we talk about you know. Kind of, kind of, you know, t- today's systems. I mean, there were, you know, these infamous in- incidents of, uh, you know, Google, uh, you know, Google's photo system, you know, mis- misclassifying, you know, African American individuals as gorillas, did very, various horrifying things. If you go to, you know, reinforcement learning systems, then, uh, you know, there's with systems that are interacting with their environment, there's kind of a new class of ways things can go wrong. Um, you know, this can be related to, you know, things like ac- accidents and self driving cars. Um, and then as systems do more and more of the high level tasks that humans do, I think, you know, the, the danger will just go up even, even as the, the basis of the worry, you know, the, the conceptual foundations of it stay the same. So, uh, you know, that's mostly what m- my team works on. And the reason I do stuff like predicting compute is I'm just, I'm just trying to understand how fast AI systems will get better. And if they're going to get better fast, or if there's a chance that they will, that's something we should know about. To outline some of the classes of risks that you scrutinize in your paper about AI safety, the concrete problems in AI safety, safe exploration. So an AI should be able to learn about a cliff that exists in a 
road environment without driving off of that cliff. You shouldn't have to drive off of a cliff in order to understand that cliffs are uh, not something that you should explore if you're a car. An AI needs to be able to deal with new circumstances. So if a self-driving car sees a new type of situation, it needs to be flexible enough to deal with it. And if you have too brittle of a model, then it's not going to be able to deal with new circumstances. You can have negative side effects. So if you told a self-driving ambulance to quickly rescue somebody, it might drive on the sidewalk to get to that person and risk injuring pedestrians, which would be a negative side effect for sure. There's there's a number of other accidental side effects that you discuss in your paper. Are there any concrete solutions to these concrete problems in AI safety, or are you just outlining these and we're still at the very early days of being able to solve any of these things? So, I mean, it's definitely true we're at the early days, but, you know, our team has has already worked on uh, a few ideas. So we currently have in progress a project on uh, safe safe exploration. You should you should see something out about that uh out about that in in a few months, you know, where where we're thinking about kind of uh, you know how to how to anticipate problems that you might encounter during learning before before they occur. Actually, one of the problems in this in this in this area, you know, we mentioned uh, kind of like scalable supervision and and reward hacking. The paper I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, deep reinforcement learning from human preferences, was you know in, in part designed you know in addition to addressing this issue of you know how do you define success, in part designed to address this issue because. A lot of where things can go wrong, you know, particularly in systems that are reaching for a goal and, you know, inter- interacting with an environment through a long series of, of events, a lot of how some of the safety issues can happen is if, you know, I'm specifying a goal and, you know, I don't necessarily know how a system is going to accomplish that goal. It may end up doing it in a way that I didn't expect and that is harmful because it's razor focused on the goal I gave it. And there, there are all kinds of these other implicit things that it should or shouldn't do. And it kind of messes that up. So the aspect of human feedback where humans look at the behavior of the agent early on while it's training and say, is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? And give feedback means that, uh, you know, you have the ability for at least by the time the system is done training itself for its behaviors to reflect some complex notion of you know human preferences, human values, what the human actually wants the AI system to do. So that paper was kind of our attempt to you know in addition to attacking some problems within machine learning itself to attack some problems within within the safety area. So uh, yeah, we're we're definitely thinking thinking a good deal about that. You know, I think with safe exploration, you know, there, there's a project in progress. We have you know one of the one of the few people who's written deep learning papers on uh, on, on safe exploration, so, uh, working in our group. Surprisingly, uh, there there actually aren't. I mean, there are some, but there actually aren't that many kind of you know up to date, state of the art uh, papers in this in this area. Which you know, I think I think there should be. I think there should be a lot more. There there are colleagues at at other institutions like at you know Google Google Brain. There's Ian Goodfellow who works on kind of these these uh, these things called adversarial examples, which are cases where you know, by making a small, small change to, to the image presented to a neural net, you can make it classify things wrong. This, you know, is both, both creates worries about systems being fragile or unreliable and, you know, systems being attacked by, by malicious actors. Um, so that's, that's kind of a range of the stuff, you know, being done by me and by others. I think it's great that you're thinking about this stuff, despite the fact that it's early days. Although my sense is that 
the way that this is this field is going to evolve is that we're simply going to restrict the deployment of machine learning models to domains where we do have a lot of control around the bounds of what the model could do. For example, we're going to have self-driving tractors that drive around farmland before we have self-driving cars that are driving around busy streets because it's a more constrained environment. All you have is corn and maybe a a couple of rabbits and you know maybe you have some cows in the area and you need to avoid the cows but it's a more restrained area you know you can't have as many big problems uh, and this would harken back to the the same conversation we had earlier where you know the the models that we can solve for are highly constrained domains like image recognition do you think that's a an accurate way of of looking at how things are going to evolve yeah. So a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think there's uh, I think there's definitely a fair a fair amount of truth to that, right? Where if you look at self driving cars, right, in 2010 we had reached the point where you know self driving cars could make the right decision, you know, 98 percent of the, the time or something, right? You know, the the original demos by by Sebastian Thrun were you know from the point of view of like is this thing driving pretty good. But 98% is nowhere near good enough. We need them to be 99.999% in order to, uh, you know, in order to be better than humans at not killing people. And so that phase, that deployment phase is going to take a long time and is going to involve a lot of, yeah, a lot of operating in restricted domains. So as that relates to safety, I'd say a couple things. One is that in part, I see safety as advancing the field, right? Because if we can address some of these safety issues in a way that we you know, can develop algorithms for it and we actually have confidence in them, uh, that will allow us to deploy things in broader environments than we otherwise would have done so. A- again, assuming that we've actually taken all the precautions and we're actually confident in them. Um, so you know, I see in some way safety as you know, kind of actively, actively advancing the state of the field and, and the state of what we can deploy. The second point I would make is I don't think this statement is universally true. I don't think that we'll fully restrict things to domains where we know what the system is doing or where we know it can't do anything bad. I think that'll probably be true for things that are obviously, you know, safety safety critical or, you know, life or life or death situations like, you know, driving or medical medical diagnosis. But I think my my bigger worry is about safety issues that are more subtle and aren't immediately seen as safety issues. So, you know, I think we're going to we're going to end up building, you know, systems that do more and more on our behalf in the digital domain. We already do, right? We have systems that, you know, predict what we like and what we don't like on Facebook. You know, we have all kinds of digital agents doing all kinds of things for us. And at some point, because we can, we're going to aggregate and because it has benefits, we're going to aggregate those agents. So, you know, we're going to have big models that have some overarching understanding of what, you know, some large number of users are doing, right? Maybe even systems that manage, you know, power grids, make economic decisions, like systems that act on kind of large, complex, connected systems. And there, it's possible for something catastrophic to happen without us immediately telling that it's catastrophic, right? It's hard to, you know, if I have a system that's like, like uh, you know, managing my Facebook account or deciding deciding what I like. There's no clean separation between this system is doing you know well well defined things on my behalf 
and this system is helping, uh, you know, Russia to, to influence the U.S. election or, you know, this system is uh, causing me to get addicted to drugs on behalf of a pharmaceutical company. Right now, these things are a bit kind of metaphorical, but I think these things will become a lot, a lot more uh, focused and, and technical issues as we automate more and more. I think the same could be true of military systems, uh, systems that make financial decisions where, you know, it just it's not clear what's catastrophic and what's not. There's no fine, there's no, you know, bright line you can draw to put rails on what a system should do and shouldn't do, right? Sometimes a system just should short sell a lot of stock. When should it do that versus when is that a catastrophic decision? It's hard to know. Um, so it, it seems to me that for those applications, we're going to be in a lot of danger and we're going to need to reach in and actually make sure that in a, in a very abstract, high level way, these systems actually do act in line with human values. And if that, that doesn't happen, I think... Uh, the amount of damage to society could, you know, I don't know when, but but could eventually be very high. Yeah, and you've written about this also, this, well, I mean, you're talking just now about catastrophic results, but those may or may not be deliberate. They may be accidental, they may be deliberate, but what we can say with a lot of certainty is that there will be deliberate use of AI for creating new threats to global security. Describe how AI challenges global security. Yeah, we've already seen kind of early versions of it. Again, not involving AI yet, but what AI does is it allows things that were previously done by humans or by simple scripts to be done, you know, cheaper, better, and faster. So, you know, all the Russia bots that tried to influence the election, actually, I don't know how, how actually effective they were compared to a world where they, where they didn't exist, but they definitely tried to influence the election. Uh, a lot of those Twitter bots were, were pretty dumb, right? You, they, they were either, you know, you know humans in, uh, you, know, in you know, content farms in, you know, Moldova or something, or, uh, or they were uh, very unsophisticated bots. But as these things become more sophisticated, I think the scale of what can be done will go up and the set of actors that can, that can do these things will go up. You know, I see, I see a lot of worries with things like uh, drones. One worry is ha- 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 just old-fashioned hacking into self-driving cars. If that could be done, could be done at scale. That you know, that's something that presents uh, serious, serious security risk. I don't want to go into too much detail about how you can maliciously use AI because I don't want to give anyone any ideas. But you know, I think there's a lot in this area. I also think uh, you know it's going to be quite inevitable that militaries are are interested in AI to create autonomous weapons for intelligence for counterintelligence, for surveillance. And, you know, that presents a lot of threats to global security and global stability, right? It's, it's just, it's new weapons, new ways of waging war, new things that could destabilize the balance of power between countries. How should governments respond to this potential for deliberate malicious AI use? Yeah, so that's a tough one. And I think, you know, depends on the, uh, you know, the, the particular application. So I'm, I'm kind of conscious that I'm not myself a policy expert. So, you know, we have kind of working closely with the safety team, but with, with different expertise, we have a, a policy team. We have a policy team at OpenAI that, that thinks a lot about these issues. So I should definitely say that I'm, uh, you know, kind of I'm not, I'm not the expert on what uh, governments, government should do. I think broadly, you know, I think extreme responses are bad. So one extreme response is to try and kind of regulate everything, right? And I think think that would be bad because that would, you know, there are many positive applications of, there are many positive applications of AI. And, you know, also if we, you know, if the United States 
regulates these technologies and other countries don't, then, uh, you know, the bad effects still happen. But uh, the, the, these, these other countries, some of which may have more nefarious intent, will simply do the same thing. But I think uh, doing nothing at all, you know, is, is also an extreme response that I think is bad, right? As AI systems get more, more and more powerful, um, they're going to have greater and greater national security implications. And so, uh, you know, I'm also very uncomfortable with the government, the government doing nothing whatsoever. You know, specific things like, you know, what, what should the government do about, you know, autonomous weapons? What should they do about people hacking, hacking self-driving cars? I mean, I think that's a very case-by-case basis. And, you know, my hope is uh, maybe it's a forlorn hope that the regulations will be drawn by, you know, people who have, you know, a lot of knowledge, knowledge and expertise, uh, expertise in the area. I think kind of broad, overreaching regulation of AI, quote, is, is a bad idea just, just because there's so, there's so many different uses of AI, right? Where like how, how, you, how you regulate like, you know, like an automated radiologist is going to be really different from how you regulate a self-driving car is going to be really different from how you regulate a drone. So uh, other than, you know, that I think we should avoid the extreme responses, I think it's really subtle and, you know, dep- depends on a lot, of, a lot of case-by-case things. To wrap up, what are you working on at OpenAI now? I feel like we've touched on a lot of different areas of your domain, but what are you working on today? How has this, how has this, uh, these past results and past research led to whatever you're working on today? So I think, uh, I mean, the things I talked about in the last hour are, are a pretty good, good overview. So I spend some of my time on this kind of like trend following and forecasting, just trying to understand where AI is going to be in, you know, two or three years and five years and 10 years so that, you know, we can defend against the threats that seem most likely to, to actually occur. Um, so some amount of my time is spent on that. You know, this work on learning from human preferences, uh, we recently released a paper called AI Safety via Debate. You know, this is uh, an extension of the the human preference work where uh, we try and make sure that agents are aligned with human interests by uh, having them debate, training them to debate each other, try and convince a human of some fact where they're able to to share some ground truth information. So it's a little bit like the kind of self-play that was used to train, uh, you know, the the deep deep mind AlphaGo uh, agent, except applied to trying to stay in line with uh, human values. As I mentioned, we kind of have this work on uh, safe safe exploration, and uh, you know we're we're also starting to think about kind of different different directions in safety. Uh, eventually, we may get into the, the adversarial example game. A lot, a lot of my own time has been spent on just growing the safety team. Um, you know, the team I run at OpenAI now now has uh, about seven seven or eight uh, people, de- depending on how you count. And uh, I think that's not enough because I think we you know face the risk that. AI could advance very fast. And so I want to grow that team as fast as I can. Another thing I was involved in in the last couple months is I was really involved in uh, writing uh, OpenAI's organizational charter, which uh, you know lays out some of what we're aiming to do in, in the long run, right? Uh, particularly in the world, which I think we'll get to eventually. It could be soon. It could, could be a long time where uh, you know we build build AI systems that that match the human human brain and human creativity in uh, in capability. And you know, OpenAI is kind of kind of founded on you know thinking about and preparing for that day, even if that day might be far away. And you know, day to day, we just uh, focus on uh, advancing AI and uh, defending against today's threats. So those are, those are some of the things I've been doing the last couple months. Is it part of the charter to make the cutting edge of AI accessible to the public, or is it just to be 
internally at OpenAI on the cutting edge? So uh, definitely the second and mostly the first. Yeah, there's a line in our charter about, you know, we think that in order to work on basically the things I work on, like, you know, the societal impacts of AI and safety and kind of policy and misuse, in order to do that credibly, we have to be as an institution on the cutting edge of AI. So what I do doesn't work without what, what everyone else at OpenAI does. You know, the people who are, who are working on robotics, who are training agents to play Dota, who are, you know, making, making discoveries in generative models, that my, my credibility and, and, you know, frankly, our ability to get technical advice and collaborate with, with really good people comes from the fact that, you know, that, that OpenAI is, is a leader in the field. And the set of things we're doing, basically, the, the recipe just wouldn't work without, without that. So that's the second part. And then, then the first part is, yeah, I mean, as indicated in the name, you know, OpenAI has been pretty focused on, you know, releasing its results to the world and making them available. There is one addendum to that, which we mentioned in the charter, which is that, you know, we think that there's a small fraction of research that may have, you know, safety or security or malicious use implications. And particularly in the kind of fast progress world, that fraction may, may grow over the years ahead. So, you know, we kind of expressed this long-term intent that the field has generally been very open and published a lot, and we think that's good for now, but we may at some point be headed into a new world where it makes sense to publish less or discourse norms around publishing may be more like what they are in, you know, the security world or the cryptography world. And we're excited to navigate that transition where we can still get as many of the benefits of openness as we can, while also, you know, kind of respecting our ethical obligation to not do harm. All right. Well, Dario, you've been very generous with your time. I am very thankful for you coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for writing such a great paper. It was thought-provoking, and I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for inviting me. Wow. Wow. 